Good morning, and welcome to the Intelligence Espresso from the Security Distillery. Every week, we aim to distill world affairs in the field of security and intelligence to a bite-sized and hopefully entertaining morning briefing. Joined by my colleagues here in Dublin, I'm Christopher Dunn. On this week's episode, we will be discussing Chinese leader Xi's state visit to Russia and its juxtaposition to Japanese Prime Minister Kishida's visit to Ukraine. We will also be providing an update to our story from last week on the ongoing protests in France over new pension reform legislation. And then we will conclude with an ethical question. Should tech companies be held accountable for their platforms and their recommendation systems which help spread terrorist content? Such a question is currently being considered before the U.S. Supreme Court. But first... From the moment Chinese President Xi Jinping stepped off his plane in Moscow on Monday, 20th of March, the Russian charm offensive was in full effect. Ostensibly meeting with his Russian counterpart for informal discussions about ending the conflict in Ukraine, no viable peace plan emerged, but a commitment to deepening ties and a pledge of continued friendship did, as did a bevy of agreements bolstering cooperation in areas from trade to technology to mutual defense, according to a Kremlin list. President Putin was desperate to put on a good show, as China remains his most valuable ally in the face of increasing global isolation following Russia's invasion of Ukraine in February 2022. What was expected to be an easy victory for Moscow has proven to be anything but, with the Ukrainian military mounting a formidable defense that has thus far fought Russia to a draw. Unwilling to give up on his ambitions to reestablish dominion over a westward-looking Ukraine, Putin has looked to China for diplomatic and material support. Expanding economic and trade relations between the countries can grant Moscow the resources to fight a prolonged war of attrition. It also provides Putin with diplomatic cover, demonstrating a show of legitimacy just days after the International Criminal Court issued him an arrest warrant over his intentional and illegal forced deportation of Ukrainian children to Russia. China, meanwhile, maintained its impartiality towards the war in Ukraine intentionally trying to position itself as a responsible and peaceful world power. In February, it released a 12-point peace plan for ending the war, which was viewed in Ukraine and the West as a non-starter due to it making no provision for Russia to remove its forces from Ukrainian territory. Also in February, China released its Global Security Initiative concept paper, which, according to Chinese state media, outlined core concepts and principles for solving global challenges. Both of these plans followed China's brokering of an agreement between the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and Iran to reopen diplomatic relations. These events indicate that China is trying to project a new image, that it can be an effective negotiator and mediator, and that its reach has long since transcended the boundaries of the Asian continent. This image, along with its deepening friendship with Russia, are the latest development in its long-term global confrontation with the United States. Should the rules ever be reversed and China is in war with Taiwan, it expects to be able to rely on Russian support for both weapons and energy security. The United States has harshly condemned this meeting, with Secretary of State Anthony Blinken criticizing China for providing this diplomatic cover to Russia and for not holding the Kremlin accountable for the atrocities committed in Ukraine. More than that, they were concerned over NATO intelligence that Russia had appealed to China for artillery shells and attack drones. According to NATO Secretary General Stoltenberg, there is no evidence that such an arms agreement has been agreed to, much less acted upon. But Western observers are still understandably on edge, especially as China and Russia have agreed to, quote, further deepen military mutual trust. 
Meanwhile, Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida made a surprise visit to Ukraine on 21st. A supportive visit that coincided with Chinese leader Xi Jinping's trip to Moscow, showing the impact of the war in Ukraine on the geopolitical situation in Asia. The Japanese Prime Minister took great risk to visit Ukraine at this time, demonstrating to the world solidarity with Ukrainian President Zelensky. This movement is constructed to the China-Russia summit talks during the same period. And it seems to confirm the G7 and China-Russia division of the international community into two factions. This time, Kishida brought less than two aides to Ukraine. According to current Japanese law, Japanese self-defense personnel cannot carry out missions aboard with guns, which means Kishida and his party secretly came from New Delhi without armed protection, departed straight to Poland, then changed to a train and entered to Ukraine. This was the first time. That Japanese prime minister stepped into the war-torn country since World War II. There are two reasons why Kishida chose to visit Ukraine at this time. First is that Hiroshima will hold a G7 summit in May this year. Kishida wants to express to the world that Japan is not far behind in the matter of supporting Ukraine. Second, Chinese President Xi Jinping is currently on a state visit to Russia. For Japan, the joint effort of these two neighboring countries will have an impact on regional peace. Kishida wants to prove Japan through this action. Japan will not give in, will not bow to power, and firmly oppose acts of aggression that unilaterally change the status quo by force. The Russian Defense Ministry confirmed that two Russian strategic bombers flew over the sea of Japan in response to Kishida's visit to Ukraine. Kishida said last year that today's Ukraine could be tomorrow's East Asia. Worrying about the possible fallout from the war in East Asia, where the Chinese military has become increasingly assertive and heightened tensions over self-governing Taiwan, which Beijing claims as its territory, a profound statement was made about the potential regional impact of the Russian incursion. Japan launched a new defense strategy in December last year that centered on acquiring advanced capability to bluster deterrence, while also seeking to stabilize relations with Beijing and maintain economic ties. The Japan and Ukrainian leaders' joint statement at this meeting include a strong language that calls for a capability for war crime and brutal act. Kishida's stay in Kiev coincided with the Xi Putin summit. Showing that if she continues to insist on pushing Putin to widen the differences with the West, the delicate balance at the core of Japanese-China strategy will become increasingly difficult to maintain and change the strategic chessboard in Europe and Asia. This time, Kiev and Moscow held two summit talks at the same time, reflecting the differences and confrontation between the G7 and China-Russia on the Ukraine crisis. Moving on, the security situation in France remains extremely tense. On Monday the 20th, the controversial pension reform was adopted by the Parliament through the use of Article 49.3 of the Constitution, which allows the President to forcefully pass legislations. This precipitated two unsuccessful votes of no confidence against the government. The law is not, however, ready to come into force, as it has to be validated by the Constitutional Council. Council judges still have the power to censor the law partially or in its entirety.
In reaction, syndicates and unions have organized new strike actions this past Thursday. Between 1.08 million demonstrators, according to the Ministry of Interior, and 3.5 million, according to the CGT, marched in more than 300 cities throughout France. Protests greatly affected many public sectors, including transportation, energy, and education. Syndicates and unions announced new demonstrations on Tuesday 28th. This new wave of protest have also been marked by a sharp increase in violence on both sides. Demonstrators reported concerning cases of police violence and misuse of weapons against them, but also more distressing cases of gender-based violence. 457 protesters were arrested on this single Thursday. On the other side, Interior Minister Gérard Darmanin denounced violence committed by thunders who wants to kill policemen and reported that 441 police officers and gendarmes were injured during the demonstrations. This rise in violence has brought some reactions on the international scene. Councils of Europe's Commissioner for Human Rights, Dunja Mijatovic, expressed he was alarmed by the excessive use of force against demonstrators and called on France to respect the right to protest. More controversially, Iranian authorities also condemned this week's French events. Iranian Minister of Foreign Affairs, Hossein Amir Abdullahain, denounced the repressions of the French people's peaceful demonstrations and reminded authorities to respect protesters' rights, in a tweet written in French. To de-escalate tensions, President Emmanuel Macron addressed the nation on Wednesday in a highly anticipated television interview. The head of the state declared he was ready to endorse the impopularity to implement these highly contested pension reforms. He stated, I am not looking to be re-elected, but between the short-term polls and the general interest of the country, I choose the general interest of the country. However, President Macron emphasized he will re-engage the dialogue with unions and syndicates on working conditions. He wants to listen to the demand, particularly concerning specific professional bodies and set the standards of arduousness that should be implemented in physically demanding jobs. Negotiation will be held in the coming weeks. To finish on a lighter note, the French web has been surprised and amused to see photos of President Macron amongst the protesters demonstrating against his own pension reform, arrested by the police, or even dressed as a garbage collector or CRS. These images, ultra-realistic, are all fake. They were generated by AI tools named Midjourney or Dell-E. It shows all the improvement in this domain and demonstrates how easy it is nowadays to produce fake news. Hello, my name is Mekla, and for the last segment of today's podcast, I'm going to delve a little bit into a more philosophical debate. Can and should tech companies be held accountable for content posted on their platforms? Can they be held liable for their recommendation systems which help spread terrorist content? This question is brought to you by two ongoing Supreme Court cases being fought in the United States, namely Gonzalez versus Google and Twitter versus Tamna, 
that will help establish whether social media companies can be held accountable for supporting terrorism by failing to take down content and accounts that promote it. The statute in question, known as Section 230, is originally a provision of the Communications Decency Act, created by the U.S. Congress in 1996 to safeguard citizens' right to free expression online. It reads, and I quote, No provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. Thanks to the internet, it has never been easier for people from all over the world to interact, exchange ideas and promote change without requiring significant resources or technological know-how. And the Congress believed that in order for user expression to flourish online, Section 230 is necessary to defend the services that support user speech. The idea is that we should all be held accountable for our own online behaviors, but typically not for those of others. Most civil lawsuits based on what other people say against users or services are prohibited by law. So in both these instances, it is the family members of victims of terrorist attacks by the Islamic State that are taking these cases to court. In the case of Twitter versus Tamna, Twitter, Google and Facebook are subjects of the lawsuit. The family members of a victim of a 2017 terrorist attack carried out by the Islamic State are defending that social media companies are to blame. In Gonzales versus Google, Google is being sued by the family of Nohemi Gonzalez, a 23-year-old American citizen studying in Paris who died in the coordinated attacks by the Islamic State in 2015 while she was studying there. The family is attempting to overturn Section 230 that shields YouTube from liability for, for posting content that potentially directly encouraged or called for this magnitude of violent behavior. An added factor is that newspapers and TV broadcasts can be sued for wrongful con- conduct and for defamation, but websites cannot be sued for the materials on their sites. One of the main acts in their favor is the Anti-Terrorism Act, according to which those who aid and abet terrorists by intentionally providing substantial assistance may be held accountable for damages resulting from international terrorism. The implications of a judgment like this could just fundamentally alter how users interact with content online as well as how tech and social media function in the future. So, to put the arguments in perspective, critics who believe that Section 230 should not be overturned argue that it would impede freedom of speech and expression and also cause censorship issues. From a law enforcement perspective, it could potentially interfere with cases especially since it's easier to surveil those who frequent these sites and seek terrorist content another argument is that it could actually push people to fringe sites maybe even more dangerous since it's an even smaller echo chamber however the argument in favor of taking down terrorist content still holds that it increases the likelihood of shifting people's world view in a time where most people are terminally online 
and this in turn could increase people who actually carry out terrorist action with the way tech companies have algorithms in place do you think this trade off is necessary something to think about That's it for this week's edition of the Intelligence Espresso from the Security Distillery. If you haven't already, please subscribe to our podcast on Spotify and follow us on Instagram at the Security Distillery. On behalf of my colleagues here in Dublin, Yue, Fiora, and Mikola, I'm Christopher Dunn. We'll see you next week.